You're listening to the ProcureTech Podcast, your weekly show for all that's cooking in the digital procurement space. Yes, we've got the hottest startups, thought leadership and conversation from visionary industry experts and definitely no stiff corporate content. I'm your host, James Meads, procurement pro, digital nomad and ProcureTech fanboy. And now here's this week's show. Yes, welcome to another episode of the ProcureTech Podcast, where every week we bring you everything that is exciting and fun and innovative in the procurement space. We are your weekly escape route from your email inbox, your firefighting, your supply chain problems, and everything else that you're tearing your hair out with. And this week, we've got something really, really educational for you, actually. We're not talking to a startup this week. Instead, we're talking to a very, very experienced practitioner on a topic that I think confuses a lot of people, but also excites us in equal measure. This week's topic is all about AI in procurement and AI in procurement technology. What is it? How is it impacting us? What's the future look like? And what even is it? And how does it work? And what type of things can it influence uh, in our daily lives as procurement professionals? So I would like to introduce you to this week's guest. She is advisory board member and also associate partner at IBM, Melissa Drew. A very warm welcome to the show. Thank you. This is going to be exciting. Yeah, I think so too. Just give us a quick background of your history and then I'm going to ask you the typical question of, are robots going to take over our lives? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. I've been in procurement for 27 years. Um, Started back in 1995, creating the first electronic RFI using federal grant money. From there, I continued on in the procurement supply chain experience and then started working with cognitive technologies in 2004. Um, Again, working with another company who was developing a patented grammar-based technology um, to support AI in spend analytics. So since then, I've constantly been fusing how AI technologies are impacting procurement, not just procurement software, but how procurement professionals need to rethink their digital transformation, and then also how they need to rethink their organization. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a really long career going back. Yeah, going back to well, 1995 mm-hmm. and AI, where was it back then? Wow. So let's start then with what are examples of AI that are out there that are not necessarily procurement related, but everyone would be able to recognize in terms of how that impacts day-to-day decisions mm-hmm. that we just sort of kind of take for granted now? Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to start with the level setting so that the audience is using the same terminology that I am. There is a perception that the results of an AI solution, so an application that's infused AI technology, is more trustworthy because the machine was involved. And in reality, the opposite is true. It is the human who had to collect the data. It is the human that had to create those algorithm and models that enabled the AI technology to be able to consume them. And then that's where you get your outcome. So when we look at AI and cognitive technologies, we're excited about the future, but then exactly on the same side, you know, exactly as excited as we are, we are also extremely skeptical 
because the human intervention and the touch points are so high. So when we look at AI and cognitive technologies, cognitive technologies are everything that you need to make a better informed decision. But the difference between that and artificial intelligence, because I will not talk about artificial intelligence today, artificial intelligence is your driverless taxi cab, where the AI technology is automatically modifying its behavior and modifying the outcomes as new information is received without human intervention. So ev- as it becomes more intelligent learning from the data that it's processing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So today you and I are going to focus on these cognitive technologies, which means a human has to be involved as new information comes in. The models then have to be retested and revalidated versus true AI, which I'm not an expert in driverless automotive vehicles, um, is a very different type of, of technology and software. So we're going to be talking about then it the algorithms that it uses are going to be influenced by humans mm-hmm. in some way in terms of how they program what they want to get as the outcome. Exactly. So, right. okay. yeah. So then we think, okay, well, if a human is collecting that data and then the human is creating that, that model, how trustworthy can we be? So for example, just in, in the news, um, Apple created a credit card algorithm, which is using AI technology. But unfortunately, they were recently accused of discriminating against women, and this triggered an investigation in New York Department of Financial Services. Another example, Amazon had an automated resume screener, but unfortunately, this resume screener was filtering out female candidates. I read that actually, yeah, yeah. because because percentage-wise, there are generally more male applicants than women in the tech industry. I think there was the the reason that they gave, right? Yeah. So everything, yeah. you know. So when we think about AI, in order for these outcomes to be represented, we have to go and teach the models, and teaching the models means we're collecting data. So in Amazon's automated resume screener, the data they used was what we call retrospective or historic data. And unfortunately, majority of the resumes in that particular category on Amazon's website were all men. So when the resume screener was developed, it was developed using the data that they had available, which unfortunately was more male than female. It was more biased towards, yeah. And that you brought up the exact word that everybody uses is how can we ensure that our AI is trustworthy? How can we ensure that the AI is not inadvertently systematically producing prejudice or skewing the results toward one demographic population over another. And that's exactly what you just highlighted, bias. If we go back then to the mid-1990s, how has AI gotten so much better now? Is it just because we are better at programming it or is it just because there's been such a, uh, such, such an incredible increased multiplication in the in, in processing power that's enabled it to do more complex tasks or is it or is it a mixture so i got really involved in in ai in 2004 specifically in procurement around spin visibility so ai early on was really used as a way to augment the human and and that's exactly what it should be used for to augment our human behavior to take some of the things that we tactically need to do over and over again and then be able to do them quicker So perfect example, before working with AI technologies, it would take me nine weeks of roughly 70 hours a week to synthesize, collect, normalize, and classify a procurement spend data. 
Then, as I started working with this tool in 2004 and 2005, and pulled in my expertise at the time to build out those models, we were able to do everything that I could do in nine weeks at 70 hours a week, and we were able to, able to do them in a few hours. That's what AI, that's why I get excited about AI, is the ability to augment that human, that human action, that human behavior, that, that human tactical activity, and take exactly what I would do normally in thinking about how to classify and then be able to automate that. But then your question was, how has that changed from, say, 2004 to now? You made a very good observation. We didn't have a lot of data available to us. Um, it's only been really recently in the past four or five years where we've had the ability to collect the data. And collecting data means we have to have the infrastructure to house it. So you hear terms like data lake and uh, data warehouse, and then there's a new term called the lake house. These are all the infrastructure that companies need to house all the data before they can even write the models and do the outcome. So it wasn't really until these last four or five years that we started to have the infrastructure to house the data. And then we started to have the AI technology that can consume the data. And then just recently, IBM started um, creating new technology that would allow the AI to even run faster than it is before. So it's, it's everything's really coming together in like that perfect storm, but in a positive way. So just a quick interlude, because there are a couple of things that I really want to make you aware of, because I think they will be valuable for you. So number one, we now have a monthly newsletter where we bring you curated content of everything that's happening in the digital procurement space. If you want to get that, just head to procuretechpodcast.com forward slash newsletter, enter your name and email, and we'll get that delivered straight to your inbox. Number two, if you're a head of procurement or a center of excellence leader, and you're perhaps a little bit confused or overwhelmed with what's out there as best of breed digital procurement technology, especially if you're a mid-sized business, schedule a call with me. There's a link at the bottom of the show notes in this episode. Just hit that schedule a call link and we can have a quick chat to understand your challenges and what potential solutions out there may be suitable for your organization. And now let's get right back to this week's show. One thing that whenever I've spoken to startups and we talk a little bit about AI, the, the best way that I can explain it, it'd be cool mm -hmm. to get your thoughts on this, is that AI enables a lot of what I call the spade work or the grunt work to be automated, which enables then procurement professionals then to free up their time to do what we're all told we need to be doing now, which is building our soft skills and engaging with stakeholders and doing SRM and all that type of stuff that enables procurement to be viewed as a more strategic and value-added function rather than just an administrative slash cost and function. So in terms of where it requires or where it will still require the human guidance, mm -hmm. you know, going back to, you know, a robot's really going to take all of our jobs. And I think we, we know <laughs> that the answer is no, but I asked it sort of just to be a bit controversial, but the, 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 where the human comes in is, I guess, being able to interpret what the AI is telling us because a machine can't yet do that task, can it? Right. So you, you'd mentioned biased, so I'm going to tie bias back into this response. There's the data bias, which is how do we ensure that we're collecting all the data? For example, if, if I have an algorithm that says you qualify for a loan, but I don't, 
you have to be able to explain it to me and I have to feel comfortable with that, that I recognize that the data was, was using the right breadth of data. And even though you and I were very similar, somebody needs to point out and explain why the AI made that decision. And then over time, as we become more comfortable with that decision, then we become more comfortable with AI being used lately everywhere, which seems to be everywhere. The other bias is now you've got the data. We feel comfortable that we've got the data and it's you know focused on everything we need. Now you've got something called social bias, which is the individuals who are writing the models. If the individuals who are writing the models inadvertently have a blind spot, then when they test it, they're testing it with their own perception of what it should be. So th these are the things that, that we're still trying to overcome. And you'll hear lately a lot of things on the news around policies. Should we have policies for AI? Should we be regulating AI? Who's going to be doing that? That's a whole nother subtopic that has just exploded and is still so fluid that we're starting to see policies and, and regulations everywhere, at the EU, at the country level, at our, in the U.S., at our federal government level, and then also now at the state level. And that's kind of similar to whether you trust news stories as well, isn't it? News sources, depending on, you know, depending on your political persuasion, will probably influence what type of media outlet you're more likely to believe as being truthful or fact-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of tied back to the yeah. same thing. I mean, it is a bit of a buzzword out there, especially in terms of how software companies use it to mm -hmm. sell their product and to get investment. How can procurement teams leverage the added value and the enhancements that, that AI can offer right now? And if, and if they're looking to procure a, a, a digital solution that uses or leverages AI, then what sort of questions should they be asking that software supplier? That's the question of the day. So Carney put together a uh, analysis along with a couple other companies and they published it and they were looking at the same thing. How many companies out there in procurement are actually using some level of AI? And the chart got so big that it became unreadable. Everybody is using some sort of AI and whether it's in commodity and directs, whether it's catalog management, ERP, category solutions, risk, contracts, performance, anything that you guys can come up with in procurement, I can probably point to at least two or three companies that are actually using some level of AI. So for example, Jaggard. Jaggard's a supply chain solution. They use deep learning and neural networks for predictive supplier analytics and to give you real-time recommendations on whether or not that supplier is going to achieve their delivery. There's a company, a logistics company, Canio. They use AI not directly to the consumer, but internally to create the most optimal delivery routes, which reduces their vehicles on the road by 10%, which reduces the, the fuel cost, the general maintenance on the vehicle, and then they in turn can push that savings onto the customer. So the analytics or the AI is being used in multiple ways. Um, spin visibility, we talked about that earlier. Now, you did ask me a question about whether or not it's going to replace. There are some tactical activities where right now I can have an individual in my marketing department who is doing social media postings and pulling together social media content. And that's typically a, a junior level position. We hire somebody out of, out of school for that. 
But I can tell you right now, there's at least three companies out there who can automate that process and either replace that individual or give you the opportunity to shift that individual to more value added strategic activities within your company. I think that's the key, isn't it? Especially for more sort of operational and and, ta- and tactical roles, it kind of begs the question. You know, at the at the moment, you've got you know in in, in many companies the model of using a BPO in a low cost country to perform that. But those roles, probably in three to five years, are going to be pretty much automated out of existence. So mm-hmm. then it's what do you then deploy that resource to do? You know, assuming that you've got the same headcount, you may you're probably going to need fewer people but more highly skilled people to be able to interpret the results that ai driven technology is giving you to be able to give you a competitive advantage so maybe it's worth looking at how would procurement teams then potentially look mm-hmm. in 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 the future if they are leveraging this technology to to its uh, to to its full effect so if i'm in the procurement department and i'm looking to either evaluate software that claims it's using AI, whether I'm going to use it in procurement, whether I'm looking at it for my internal stakeholder, or whether I'm buying it for you know someone else. There are, there are things that, that you can look for. Um, if someone says that it's scripted automation, or it's a rules-based automation, or they tell you it's using if-then-else statements, that's not AI. That's not mimicking human thinking, and it's not learning as new inputs are added. If the customer, if the the vendor, the supplier, isn't excited to explain to you how it works, they're probably not using AI. If someone tells you that once the data goes through the AI and the outcome, and then it requires somebody from that company to then manually intervene and manipulate the data, or they ask you that once the data gets outputted, you will need to manually go in and and intervene. Yeah, they may have been using AI, but what that tells me is that AI hasn't been maintained. Because if the AI had been maintained over the years, there shouldn't be a heavy lift on you or the supplier to manually intervene and manipulate the data. Number four, do you understand how the data was used? For example, if if you're looking at the AI to solve a solution globally, is the data that's being used by that supplier coming from the US and coming from Asia-Pac and coming from the EMEA? If not, those are things that you discuss early on. They need to be able to explain to you very clearly and show you some type of data mapping that here are the gaps in our data. And that's okay. Maybe there's some opportunities that you have as as the, the individual buying it where you can supplement some of that data with your own. And then I think the biggest one that that I've noticed is AI solutions don't pop up overnight. And, and that's something that's been very interesting. I've seen a lot of companies where they pop up and say they have AI, but they've never spent the time and effort to build it out. One particular company, a startup, spent three years building their technology, patented it, and they didn't even have their first customer until last year. And now they're being praised as one of the most innovative strategic sourcing, predictive sourcing you know, applications. Because it takes time to train it and to get it to to give the output that that it needs to give to be yeah. useful to a to a commercial enterprise. Right. So a lot of these companies, you know, that was I mentioned, you know, from the Carney analysis, a lot of these companies have been around for years. You may have not heard about them because maybe they were in the background building their technology, or right. somebody like an Ecovadis, a DocuSign. Um, these are companies that we've heard of in procurement, but they've been adding and building on over and over again. So there's there's two types, the ones that 
have been hidden for the last three years that appear to be popped up, but they put a lot of effort into making sure that it's right. And then there's the other kind where they've been around, you've heard them, you've probably already been working with them, didn't even realize that AI was a part of the solution until just now. Talk to me a little bit about machine learning, because that's like a subsection of AI, isn't it? Yes. So underneath the cognitive and AI technologies, we have, I'm going to, just the most common ones, machine learning. Then there's something called deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning. So machine learning is how we create algorithms and and it's really the most common. It's how we predict our outcomes, how we do our patient diagnosis, how we assess the, the data for spin visibility. But deep learning Deep learning looks at not just data as the input, but images and videos and other visual inputs. So companies like language translations for Google, customer recommendations, uh, driverless taxis, facial recognition for iPhone, that's all deep learning where it's taking non-text information and then being able to make a decision. So with, with both of those then, the key to the software being useful to the end user is having a critical mass of data that it's been able to work with and process mm-hmm. to be able to to provide an outcome that that is predictable enough to have added value to the end user and i guess that goes that goes back to your previous point then that company startups may have been around for years but they have to perfect the technology in order for it to be you know a commercially viable product which i think brings up what happened with iphone and the facial recognition where's the balance for this solution how how much did we as the consumer feel comfortable with the facial recognition software of the iPhone? Because now you're using that facial recognition to get into the phone versus somebody who spent the last three years trying to perfect it. And I think the, and I hate to you know call out iPhone, but I think that's a really good example. Somebody who really put a lot of effort into it and they had documentation of all the different images and, and where the images came from and looking at the different geographical nuances of images and the social you know, images and people with hats and sunglasses and, and different you know, facial features and smiling and laughing and all of those things had to go into that recognition. And I think what's interesting is in procurement, we always look at 80-20. We put a lot of our time into the 80% because we're going to spend double the time if we look at the 20%. But the opposite is true when we look at cognitive technologies. We need, you want these companies to spend that extra time on that 20% because that's where it's going to fail. As the examples we used earlier, the credit card analysis, the Amazon auto screener, um, just recently Microsoft was in the the news uh, where they were trying to train their chatbots. And unfortunately, people were using flammatory language and so the chatbot was picking that up and thinking it was normal. And then it was turning around and that's how it was communicating to people on Twitter. <laughs> Using that to its customers. <laughs> yeah. So so putting my commercial hat on mm-hmm. then, if I was going out and, and purchasing some software that, that utilized this technology, I guess the key the, the key thing that I would need to know, to know or to understand in terms of understanding my negotiation potential with a software company is is how mature is this machine learning algorithm because if the if the software company needs me and my data as a customer to perfect that then I as a buyer potentially have more negotiation potential in terms of being an early client or early customer of that that startup to mm-hmm. be able to sort of work with them hand in glove to to develop and perfect the technology because that has a huge value proposition to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's 
you know, for example, hey, I'm working with a supplier and they mentioned AI. Well, where is AI actually being used in your in your solution? So I, I've, you know, we, there's a checklist. If you're using AI, AI is typically there to solve a problem. So what problem are you solving? Can you give me a fact sheet that outlines all the data that was used in developing your models? Can I see the governance structure? So remember, the the whole structure behind this is very vast. There's the groups of people that are working with the data. There's the groups of people that are writing the models. There's probably a separate group of people that are testing them. And some companies are actually creating review boards to review the results before they even say it's ready for public use. How often do yeah. you maintain them? I mean, there's there's just a lot of questions that that we need to ask now that we never would have thought about because we really weren't focused on the AI component of that solution. Right. And and if we look into the future, mm-hmm. how do you see procurement teams being able to work hand in hand with with these technological advantages in terms, you know, how can procurement sort of take the next step in terms of if I use Phil Eidson's from Art mm-hmm. of Procurement's favorite favorite buzzword of be, of you know being a partner to the business because I do think that is the way that as a function we're, we're ultimately going and we will move. It will take time before CFOs recognize it, but I do genuinely think we're moving away from just being a, a cost savings delivery function and more of a a wider business value function, especially if you're thinking more about triple bottom line and sustainability and and, and that type of thing. How can we how can we evolve to to leverage this, but and 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 to be able to perform where we should be instead of doing all of the you know administrative and firefighting stuff? I'm absolutely in agreement that the role of procurement is no longer cost savings. It is we've we've evolved out of that. I think there's still some some companies out there that still have that maybe philosophy. But in order to to grow, in order to remain competitive in this multiple technology-driven world, our procurement teams have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And and I say (laughs) that, you know, it sounds funny, but but I say that with with a lot of like heaviness behind my my voice is up until now, and and I used to be on the procurement side. I used to be in the procurement department um, across vendor management and supplier diversity and procurement operations and contracts and sourcing. And I can tell you the processes haven't technically really changed a lot since 2008, but things are changing so rapidly that we have to have a different mindset. So we have to be comfortable with knowing that we are going to be uncomfortable. We have to be more comfortable with change. We have to recognize that there's these new roles within the the organization called chief data officer, chief analytics officer, and it's going to be imperative, like imperative, that the chief procurement officer ensures that procurement is in their agenda. I can already cite several examples where I've walked into a company and they're building a huge you know, data warehouse that supports the organizational data so that they can make better informed decisions. But then when I look at the data, procurement data is not even in there. But procurement data is one of the key backbones of making decisions for the company. Right. Every company knows what they sell, but not many understand what they yeah. buy. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier, startups. Most of the new AI technology is being developed by startups and small businesses who are not restricted or hindered in their innovation growth strategy, which then going back to your question, how's that impact me in procurement? There's going to be a emergence of new suppliers. How we look at new suppliers, our policies around suppliers, our old policies around three bids and a buy. Think of it this way. 
40% of the suppliers that you will work with in 2022 are not the suppliers that you're currently doing business today. So you, you think that we need to be a lot more agile then in the way that we that, that we audit and onboard and, and bring suppliers on and partner with them? Yes, absolutely. Because you are either going to be partnering directly with that technology. So for example, the company that I spoke of that created that new strategic sourcing application, you're either going to be working with them directly or you're going to be working with maybe a large application vendor who doesn't have a lot of AI technology, but they have a lot of APIs that connect to other small companies that have it. And there's a couple of companies out there that I can think of, like yeah. Fair Markets. Um, they have an AI technology that solves a particular problem, and it's great. It's something that these larger applications haven't spent the time focused on. So instead of these larger application companies going out and trying to solve it, they just built the API that connects to that one. That can connect to it and integrate it. Yeah, yeah. but either way, when I look at procurement, I'm still going to have a contract with both of them. Yeah, and do you think then that the overall category management model will will become obsolete as we as we go down this route because it's i find it quite it's it's very siloed isn't it oh, that's my that's not my category go and speak to bob down the down the hallway he manages that it, it's it doesn't give that level of flexibility and agility to to manage this type of relationship does it because if you if you've got a certain category manager that manages one area of it spend and then someone else that does another piece it's it's kind of difficult to to manage that holistically with that model. No, I, I, I agree. I recall that when I was in procurement, there was always, you know, a, a tier of suppliers that we called them corporate suppliers where we had multiple stakeholders. And then the question is who actually owns the relationship of that supplier. And because that supplier supports multiple things, technology, services, you know, software, suddenly it's a supplier that fits across three categories. And then the same question pops up, who owns the relationship with them? I mean, we just started seeing that with the normal components of category management. And now you bring in AI and you bring in all these new innovative companies. And some of them are going to be very specific to a problem that they're solving, but it, they're solving a problem. They're not, they're not, they're not saying I'm in this category. I'm, I'm in procurement category. This is where I need to sit. They're saying I'm solving a problem and that problem can span across all categories. I think that's a very good observation. Yes. I don't have the answer to it yet, but I think that's a very good observation. Absolutely. No, none of us do, but I'm certainly <laughs> with you in terms of the thought process. Yeah, I would, I would, I would concur with that. Uh, definitely. Mm -hmm. So my last question, Melissa, if, if I was coming into a new greenfield role as head of procurement and I had to put together a digitization strategy, what would be the one overarching tip that you would give me? I think the procurement organization of the future is not going to look like the procurement organization in the past or the present. If I was a new chief procurement officer and I had the luxury um, to build something brand new, the first thing I would need to do is throw out the playbook. I would need to throw out everything I've learned or what I thought to be true and truly start Greenfield. And I, and I, I think that's going to be the hard, I think that's going to be really hard. I mean, we've been doing three bids and a buy, or we've had these same procurement policies for the last 20 years. It's going to be difficult to, to throw that out. It's also going to be difficult to 
ensure a data literacy culture within my procurement team because we've never had to to understand those. Especially in places where it's difficult to fire underperforming employees. I'm thinking Europe in particular. It's uh, that's a massive challenge. Mm-hmm. I I would love to be. I would love to have that role, a, a new chief procurement officer, where I was given the room to create a procurement office of the future. I would definitely need to connect with that chief data officer to ensure that my procurement data is getting pulled in. I would love to work with the chief analytics officer, which is where the models are being written, because there's lots of decisions that are being made in procurement today based on data. So I think when we look at the the new role of the chief procurement officer, it's, it's really looking at it from a couple different angles, building that procurement future, but being able to recognize that th- this AI technology is not just the technology that we're buying for our internal customers, but we, the procurement organization, are also a customer. And there's a whole role of things that we could be doing with that data and making decisions. And, and that some of the stakeholders that we saw as being critical in, in the past may not be as critical in the future, and some that we may not have even have spoken to in the future. You mentioned the CDO and mm-hmm. the uh, the chief analytics officer. They're going to be absolutely vital to to you getting what you want and being included and incorporated into the overall company's data strategy that's a fantastic mm-hmm. observation and and yet and yeah it's uh, and yet it's probably something that most cpos haven't maybe considered in the past i don't know it's um but it's 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 a very it's a very very important point yeah, yeah. so if anyone would like to learn a little bit more about your work and what you do what's the best place that people can find you and get in touch linkedin I made a vow that I would be open to knowledge transfer and knowledge sharing to anyone. Fantastic. So I will link to your LinkedIn profile in the in the show notes. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. You're probably going to get lots of connection requests. Sharing information is the only way that we're all going to move forward together. Yes. And if we have half of our procurement organization going off in one direction and the other half going off in the you know completely opposite direction, then overall as a procurement industry, we're not doing anything different. And we're going to we're going to, and I hate to say it, but we're going to still be the stepchild of the organization. If we've got chief data officers and chief analytics officers that are getting the priority, yeah, we need to make sure that we still have that really loud voice that we're being heard and that we're being part of the agenda. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your final value bomb for this episode. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for reaching out and coming on the show. It's been absolute pleasure to talk to you. I've certainly learned a lot from the questions that we that you've answered today and and certain and some of the observations that you've made so i hope everyone out there as well uh sort of feels the same and that we've been able to break this down into a sort of plain english explanation of what's happening where are we going and what do you need to be aware of and perhaps consider going forward because yeah it is a topic that you hear a lot about but a lot of people scratch their heads and perhaps don't want to feel stupid to ask well you know what what does all of this mean so uh, very very insightful melissa thank you so much and uh, and and yeah keep spreading the word and mm-hmm. uh, and and sharing your knowledge because i i think we need it in this space yeah more conversation in the space absolutely so that was Melissa, who was telling us all about AI in procurement. Just a couple of things before we sign off. If you like us, then don't forget to subscribe to the show where you listen to your podcasts. We put out a new show every single week, and we will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, take care, look after yourselves, keep delivering value, and bye for now.